as you know, last uh, time or last couple of times before we broke for the summer, well, we didn't really break for the summer. We just had camp and had some things going on. We, uh, you know, we got into dispensations. And uh, I told you back then that uh, dispensations are really the key to rightly dividing the Bible. And I, I walked you through the different kinds of uh, guys, what they believe. And, you know, and I told you that fundamentally we here, uh, as most real Bible believers, we are, um, we are um, moderate dispensationists. In other words, we, uh, we're not ultra, we're not uh, hyper. Um, I mean, I get hyper about a lot of things, but dispensationalism is not one of them. Uh, but we're just a moderate dispensationalist. And that's what the correct approach to, is on the Bible. Uh, the Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, and, and he doesn't mean by that that you just divide it however you want to divide it. But the Bible has natural divisions in it. And that's what we're trying to do in Bible Institute to give you, you know, add to what we've already given you. And, uh, you know, the last time we talked about, I think we got through the first two. And the first dispensation, just as a short recap, uh, is Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2. That is probably the most important because it defines uh, the verse there uh, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Everybody takes that to be the beginning of, 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 you know, time, whatever, God. And then you always get the question, if there's God's eternal, how can there be a beginning? And, of course, all those are legitimate questions. Uh, but we defined that last week by going to probably the key chapter in the Bible that goes along with Genesis 1-1, and that is Proverbs chapter 8. And in verse 22... We saw where it says in the beginning, we saw it defined for us. Uh, it's clearly now in the beginning of his way. And that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the beginning of God or the beginning of time or the beginning of anything. He's talking about the beginning of the way God is going to go now that the Bible uh, is going to begin to unfold itself, or I should say God's plan is going to unfold himself. So, you know, we now know that, and that's a key part of everything that, uh, you know, it's the beginning of his way. There's a way now God is going to go, and we need to find that way, stay with that way, understand that way, and, you know, obviously make his way our way. So we talked about this being the original creation and the gap aspect that uh, this is where Lucifer fell. This is where the world goes into chaos, and, you know, and then, and then from that point on. And that is... That is a, a key part of your Bible, which obviously we know this from from our just our other times. Everybody rejects today. Nobody believes anything about the gap today. Um, it's completely been rejected uh, and goes out the window. And of course, a lot of that has to do with what we talked about Thursday night and, and Joy's question about you know the things you lose when you lose your Bible, and that's just that's just the way it, it works with that. The second one we got into was the second dispensation, ran from Genesis 1-2 up to Genesis 3. And uh, this will be the reconstruction of everything. You'll notice that God is, is refashioning things after things that were already here. He's not, you don't find the word creation at all in chapter, rest of chapter 1 
uh, till he gets down to the animal's life that he creates, cattle and all that stuff. So this is a reconstruction of God's original creation that was through in the chaos uh, when, you, uh, when you get into it. You know, uh, again, one of the key things, and I think I probably pointed this out to you the last time, is that when Adam is given his commission, he is told to be fruitful, multiply, and to replenish the earth. Uh, the aspect of replenishing the earth versus just plenishing the earth uh, is very uh, significant because to replenish means that you're going to put something back that um, that once was there. And of course, this leads the guys who don't know anything about the Bible to start to say, well, that means you're telling me that there was a race of people here, Adam's going to... Re-. And of course, they fail to see that uh, Adam, before he fell was created in the likeness of God and the image of God, which made him a son of God. And so what he's told to replace is the sons of God, which fell in Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2, because that's who fell. But they can't get that because of the fact that it is so far out in left field when it comes to the Bible. But uh, <clears throat> this dispensation will come up to the fall when Adam and Eve uh, fall, and this, that ends uh, this dispensation. Now, I told you that in the, throughout the Bible, you'll find God makes eight covenants with people. And uh, I'm going to throw those in as we go through here. Obviously, the one in Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 3 with Adam was, the, was with the, what they call the uh, 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 Edenic, like Eden, Garden of Eden covenant. And a covenant just simply means that's a deal that God, easiest way to understand it. A covenant is a deal God makes with somebody. He made a covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden. And of course, they broke that covenant in chapter 3. So the next dispensation that we're going to start with today will be uh, Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 9. And this will run us up through uh, a a bunch of things that we'll talk about uh, in this dispensation. Uh, You'll find... uh, two covenants within this dispensation. And the first one will be the covenant that God makes with uh, Adam, which is called the Adamic covenant. And then a little bit later on, when we get into chapter six, we find that God makes a covenant with Noah. So these are two more covenants that you want to be able to put in a time frame of the Bible. And Genesis chapter four up to nine will cover us from the fall up to the flood. And uh, in this period of time, God is, again, a dispensation is not just a period of time, as most guys teach, but it's a time period where God is doing something uh, differently in each one of these. And I will point that out to you. Obviously, you saw the difference of what God is doing. Keep in mind now, this has to all to do with God's way. And God's way changes by the direction by which he does things, and in those changes are what we call the dispensations. And dispensations is the change from where God dealt with man this way to now man dealing with man this way. <clears throat> Obviously, the, uh, the covenant here to uh, Adam in uh, the third dispensation, God had to change the way he's dealing with man because now uh, we're in the fall. And uh, here, God deals with man uh, on the basis of his conscience. And um, he'll do this through the Old Testament up to the law. 
We have been studying in Proverbs how important the spirit of man is, how that the book of Proverbs says that the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. That's where God first touches a man. The spirit of man will be his conscience. It's what he thinks about something. If he sears his conscience, that means he's devoided his spirit of any real truth. Therefore, he doesn't have a conscience about it. If he lends his spirit to truth, then the word of God written on the tables of his heart, as the Bible says, will begin to pour him a conscience that he knows what he's doing is wrong, even though there's no law bent on it, but he knows that from God's law, it's, uh, it's not the right thing to do. And in this period of time, we find that still, we always find grace in operation. There's no question about that. Grace is always there. And um, it's a thing where nobody could ever get to the point where they have anything with God or get anything from God if God or God would give them anything if there wasn't grace involved. Grace runs from all the way through the Bible, wherever you find it, wherever dispensation you're in, there will be grace in operation. Maybe not the same way in different things, but it's there. And it goes along with the way God deals with man. When God changes the way he deals with man, the grace aspect is still there, but that grace aspect may change a little bit as he, he deals with them. Here we're going to come up with, uh, you know, uh, let me get back here. If you want to uh, follow through here, we come into Genesis chapter 3 as the fall, we know, and then Genesis chapter 4, um, you know, it says, and, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Uh, and again, uh, bear his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, most people, uh, most people don't see this or whatever, but if you look over here in Genesis chapter uh, 5, look at verse uh, 4. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begot sons and daughters. So he has 800 years of having kids. And most people, they don't see that, so they think that, and this is an important thing about your Bible, the Bible only focuses on three of the boys, obviously Cain and Abel and then Seth. Not one word is said about the other uh, 800 kids, or not 800 kids, but 800 years with all the kids that he had. And you can see by the end of 800 years, if, uh, you know, she had uh, two kids a year, you know, that you could see where by the time the 800 years rolls around, those kids growing up and having kids in the generations, you'd have quite a few people on the earth. And, uh, you know, and that's another problem for a lot of people where all the people came from. So you find that, um, you know, Cain and Abel uh, is our first uh, uh, guys in the Bible. And of course, uh, Cain kills Abel. And we know that uh, we know all the the darkness behind that. And then Cain, verse 16, uh, goes out from the presence of the Lord uh, and he builds a city. And uh, this city uh, obviously becomes uh, the forerunner of Babylon. And it becomes the, 
uh, it becomes a city where, you know, one of the things that you want to remember um, is that the first city in the Bible was started by a murderer. So the murder rate in the cities is going to be unbelievable compared to, you know, country folks or even country towns. You know, uh, it's just that the big cities, uh, it, it's just that principle that comes all the way through the Bible. And, you know, so we, we come up here and, and chapter four uh, ends with Cain, you know, and then we have Seth coming up here. And then we get into chapter five. You know, we have the uh, story of, of Enoch. And, uh, you know, Enoch walked with God as not for God took him. And we start to see a, a line develop here with Enoch uh, that brings us up to, uh, to, to Noah. And uh, so we see that the early part, chapter 4 and 5, deal with the events after the fall where God is dealing with them. And then you see that uh, uh, from that point on, in 5, we have Enoch, and it begins the line that's going to go to Noah. And that'll bring us up to Genesis chapter 6, where God now begins to uh, uh, see what's going on and begins to uh, move in another direction again. So it's all in the same dispensation. Uh, but now we see the covenant that God makes with Noah. And the Bible tells us that, verse 4, that there were giants in the earth in those days, and we know that. And here again, this is another key piece to your Bible that scholarship has thrown out about the sons of God and about everything that uh, is, has been transpired and everything that is happening. And uh, the sons of God show up, and uh, obviously Satan is at work again. And uh, we see that everything that we're going to be looking at in the Bible is going to be revolving around in the final analysis, um, you know, the devil wanting to get back where he once was in the first dispensation, 1 1 to 1 2. And that forms the thing of all history. Tomorrow, we get into Proverbs, it's kind of a unique little twist. Uh, we're going to get into a set of verses that shift from practical uh, or doctrinal to, to political. And uh, it's a thing where we're going to see a set of verses that talk about um, the, the political arena of life. And most people don't think of the Bible, they think of it as a, a history book and a book to tell you how to get to heaven and, you know, the good book and all these things, how to fix your problem. Most people never see the Bible in its most potent form. And that is that it's a political book. Uh, the Bible is a book that's written about a kingdom, a king, a throne, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. First and foremost, you know, the Bible is a political book. We hear a lot about political correctness today, you know, and uh, being politically correct. And we know what that means in our own country with the liberals being very choosy and wanting not to offend anybody. But here again, the truth of the matter is the real concept of political correctness will be God's government. Amen. It will be politically correct in every way, shape, or form based on the Bible and truth. That's the real definition of political correctness. But like everything else, the world steals that, throws it out into the arena of the liberals and the mindset of the world today in America, anyhow. And uh, so everybody is that. Everybody is a, you know, uh, today, everybody is afraid what they're going to say because they're going to offend somebody. 
in the millennium when God's political correctness comes in, everybody's afraid what they're going to say because he's sitting on the throne. There it is. Big difference. So we see that uh, obviously the devil's plan here is to come down and uh, propagate the world. The sons of God we know are the fallen angels. They come down and uh, they, uh, they begin to... Um, they begin to propagate sexually with the uh, daughters of men. And there again, you get the scholar that come in and you basically deny that the sons of God uh, are angels that come down and they come up with the stupid aspect that this is the uh, godly line of Seth uh, marrying unsaved women. And of course, uh, when a man speaks like that, he's holding up a sign saying, look how shallow I am when it comes to the Bible. One, there is no godly line of Seth anywhere in the Bible. Two, uh, there's no unsaved women back here because nobody's saved. So those two things go, but that's what you got to do when you reject the truth of the Bible and you can't rightly divide it. We know that the sons of God, fallen angels come down. So through that, the devil can overtake the world again and get everything that he wanted. The world is, is very, very ready for this because uh, he says that, uh, uh, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart uh, was evil continually. So man is right ready for all of this. And of course, this is where uh, he comes in and uh, he begins to do that. And in verse 6, our first time we find it in the Bible, and it repented uh, the Lord. And uh, the word repented here shows up, and we think, because again, we know anything about the Bible that God is sorry that he made it man. And, you know, he thought, well, I should have thought this thing through before I did it. No, we do that. No, the, the word repent mean or repented here simply means that God now is going to go through another course of action. He's going to change direction. And we know that is going to be the flood. And so uh, we see that. Uh, come over to Exodus chapter 32. I'll just give you this since we're here. Now here's your defining verse on repentance. You want to get this down. You want to mark this in your Bible. Verse 12, 35, 32, 12. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Here it comes. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Now you see that? He just defined repentance as turning from. And that's your definitive verse in the, in the Bible on repentance, if you don't have that already. And then, of course, uh, God brings in the, in the, has him make an ark, God brings in the flood, and the flood takes place in uh, uh, chapter uh, 7 and 8. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, again, it's, it's talked about uh, in theological circles as a local flood, not a universal flood. And yet we know the Bible uh, makes it very clear that the whole earth was covered by it. And uh, this flood uh, wipes out uh, not only all the wickedness, but Moly important, wipes out the sons of God. There's something about when the fallen angels came down and, and took on some kind of humanoid form that 
they lost the ability to get back off earth or lose some part of their spiritual nature. And, um, and so they, 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 they were trapped in the flood and they couldn't get off and they drowned. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's something that changed when they left their first estate. And obviously the first estate was their spiritual ability to be spiritual in every aspect as a being. Um, but when they took on the form of whatever they took a form on and cohabited with women as human beings or humanoid anyhow, uh, they seemed to have lost that ability because they couldn't get off and they all drowned it. Now here again, you're going to find that salvation is always based on grace because you can't have salvation given to you in the first place or any opportunity. And we use the word salvation, but there's different forms of salvation through the Bible. That's what dispensations are really all about. And here's a play. Here, Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the guy, your, your people teaching the Bible today will teach you that that means that Noah saved. Obviously, if they believe that the sons of God in Genesis 6 were saved people, uh, they're going to teach you that Noah was saved, like you and I are. And of course, that's, that, that's heresy. That's not true. The Bible said Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the grace was there for his salvation, but he had to do what God told him to do for that grace to operate in his life. And what God told him to do was to build a boat. And when he built the boat, that's what saved him. The Bible says that Noah moved with fear in the preparing of the ark and the saving of his household. It was the ark and the building of the ark that saved him. Now, we know that ark's a type of Christ. We know that. So, it, but, but I'm saying, if he would not have built that boat, he would have died just like everybody else. And, of course, it shows you there that the key aspect about salvation that everybody misses today, it's always grace and it's always faith. But salvation is grace and faith based on you doing what God tells you to do. And in every dispensation, it may be a different thing that he tells you. When we see the next one, we see Abraham. The Bible says that God took him out and told him about his coming seed and the stars. And the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him to righteousness. His salvation with God was based on believing what God told him about the stars here, it's faith in God uh, about building a boat. And you got to remember that uh, it had never rained in this time period, so nobody really understands what rain is. It's a total, complete, um, different mindset. He's building in his backyard a boat the size of the SS Harry Truman aircraft carrier. Uh, it's in a world where it never rained. You can imagine how absolutely ridiculous he was looked at and how crazy people thought he was, I guarantee you the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. They looked in the world, even though as wicked as it was, they looked in the world at that everything was peace, love, just like it is today. So Noah is a great picture of you and me who are telling everybody that God has a book that you better get, like he was telling everybody God's got a boat you better get on. And they looked at him just as stupid and crazy as they look at you and me. And that's the, you know, you see that when you, when you lay it out and you get everything, you know, uh, the way it, it really presents itself to be. 
So it's a great, great, um, you know, analogy uh, in this dispensation about salvation. And that's, that's what I want you to really focus on. God is dealing with men differently. It's always grace and it's always faith, but it's grace given to them to have the faith to believe whatever God tells them that they have to do to merit his salvation. And of course, you know, uh, here it was build a boat. And that boat, as I said, is a type of Christ. Uh, and, uh, you know, so the flood takes place in 7 and 8. And then in 8, 1, it says, And God remembered Noah and every living thing. And uh, then uh, it says that, uh, uh, you know, in chapter 9, uh, they come out of the ark. And Noah, at the end of 8, he builds an altar. And... Uh, by the way, that's in verse 20. If you don't have it marked, that's the first time you find altar in the Bible. And uh, you'll know that uh, not only is there, uh, uh, he builds an altar when he comes out, but when you read down through here, you'll find there's a rainbow connected with it. There's only two rainbows in the Bible. One of them is in Genesis here with Noah, and the other one is at the second coming of Christ, clearly showing you that uh, Noah is uh, a picture of the uh, of the nation of Israel. What you have here basically is this. Uh, in chapter 5, you have Enoch. Enoch's a type of the church. And he's a picture of you and me. And that's why he, his disappearance is Enoch walked with God was not for God took him. And what happens here is he's, he's, he's raptured out basically. And the moment that he raptures out, the flood takes place. We could take the lifetime of, 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 of Methuselah and Lemek and all of these guys leading up to Noah, and you would find if you added them up that the flood came on the exact day that Enoch died, which is a picture of when the rapture takes place, the tribulation will start that day. And, uh, you know, and then we have Noah as a type of the nation of Israel going through the flood, a type of the tribulation period. And then he, uh, you know, he comes to the point where he's in an ark type of Christ that protects him. And everything is just the way that, uh, you know, that it's supposed to be. And you were told that in the Old Testament, you were told that the time that Noah is in the ark has something to do with the time that God deals with the Jew in the tribulation period. That's in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 54, I think. Somebody can correct me on that if I have that wrong, but I think it's Isaiah 54. Uh, and so you see all these things working in there. And these are the, this is what the Bible does. It'll give you the historical account going from dispensation to dispensation but with every story within those dispensations, you'll have everything that you need. So, uh, chapter seven, you know, or excuse me, chapter nine, is the fact that uh, uh, the Bible says in verse one, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Notice he gets the same commission that Adam got. Here again, it helps you define uh, what the word replenish means. Here it means to replenish the people that uh, were wiped out in the flood. When he gave that to Adam, it was to replace the sons of God that were that uh, left with Satan between one one and one two. 
clearly, uh, you know, just following through it and, and, and getting to uh, where you need to be. So Genesis chapter 9 uh, brings us up there and, uh, you know, it, it, we have uh, the boys of three, three boys of Noah and they're going to populate the whole earth. Everybody on this planet today come from three boys and their wives, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And, uh, you know, through the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, you know, it's, it's all interbred, intermixed, and now we have all the races that we have, but fundamentally, it all goes back to those three. And uh, that's, just the way, uh, that, that's just the way that it works. So, you know, we see from Genesis 4 to 9, this is the, uh, the third uh, dispensation. And so then we move into the fourth dispensation. This one <coughs> will run us from Genesis chapter 10 up to Exodus chapter 12, uh, or maybe 20. You could, 20 is where the law is given, but I, I always mark it at Exodus chapter 12. At the time frame, it may be eight chapters, but it's all the same time period there. Now, the events in Genesis cover 2,315 years. And at the end of Genesis you'll find that uh, um, these boys go down to, to, um, to Egypt. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And there's a reason for that. But we find from Genesis chapter 10 up to the law in Exodus chapter 12 or 20, however you want to count it. Uh, and this will be, uh, you know, this will be the, uh, uh, the dispensation uh, of the law. And it's given to Moses a little bit later on. Uh, in Genesis 10, we see it start with Abraham. So now we have the covenant to Abraham. A little bit later on, we're going to have the covenant to Moses, just like we just saw in the last one. There were two covenants in this one. So we have from Genesis 10 to Exodus 12. And in this one, we will find the formulation of the nation of Israel. This is where it begins to uh, take its shape and form in a very early way. <clears throat> but the time you get to Genesis 10, 11, and 12 and move on through that, you clearly now see two lines uh, forming up through the Bible. And just like in church history, we see the two lines of the Bible believers versus the ones that are not, we see that two lines forming in the Old Testament, but not around the Bible, but around the nation of Israel. And uh, so we see the formulation of the nation of Israel. It began to form itself. In chapter 11 is the first time that you find where he begins to talk about Abraham. And uh, it's down here in verse 26. And Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And of course, this is where Abraham first enters into the equation. A little bit later on, God singles out Abraham. And he singles him out and says, in him is going to become my nation. 
In the Old Testament, God operates through nations. In the New Testament, he operates through a book. It's very important to see that. You don't want to get confused on that. <clears throat> because, you know, we get the idea, you know, that you've heard it many, many times, you know, that America is a Christian nation. In the New Testament, there are no Christian nations. There are nations of people who believe the Bible and maybe get saved, but there are no nations that are Christian. The only nation that was God's nation down through history was the nation of Israel in the Old Testament because God works through nations in the Old Testament. He doesn't work through nations in the New Testament, though he uses nations. But he only uses nations to get to the world the object that he does work through, and that, of course, is the Word of God. You want to remember that so you don't get caught up in all of this. So Abraham shows up. God says about him, you know, that he is... You know, he is everything that I want him to be. He's going to take care of his children. That's very important because the children and the formulation of the nation of Israel is going to come through the children. So he says, he picks him. And then, uh, you know, in, uh, in chapter uh, 11, verse 36, uh, 26, excuse me, it says, uh, I'm sorry, hang on. And here in, uh, in chapter 12, uh, verse 1, he tells Abraham to get out of the country that he's in. He separates him from everybody, everybody in his family. He separates him from them because now he's going to start a brand new nation and it has to start with one man because it's going to be a totally complete breakdown of everything um, from this point on. Uh, he's called... Uh, you know, he's called out of the Ur of Chaldees, and uh, obviously he's given a <coughs> piece of land. <coughs> that land, <coughs> in time, will become what we know as the land grant that is given to the nation of Israel. That is their millennial inheritance. They don't have it now. The only time they ever did have it was for a short 40 years when Solomon was on the throne, but uh, they don't have it at this point in time. Uh, they've completely lost uh, any of that. So he calls Abraham out and he says there in verse 3 of chapter 12, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now in 1818, a little bit farther down, he says uh, all the nations are going to be blessed. Clearly, Abraham is the, uh, in this dispensation, uh, that brings us up to the law is now God formulating the nation of Israel. And here, again, it works on man's conscience up to the law where God is dealing with guys, Abraham's the model of that, on his grace that he gets, the faith that he has, and what God tells him to do. And uh, if you see this thing developing, look at 14. Chapter 14, look at verse 13. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram, here it is, first time in your Bible, the Hebrew. This is the first time he's called a Hebrew. Now, we know him as Jews today, and the word Jew doesn't get used uh, anytime early on. It's a name that comes to them uh, 
during the cap, not right before they go into the captivity uh, and maybe into the captivity. It's a term that they get that uh, uh, you don't find them called that back here. We call them that, but they're called Hebrews back here. And this is the first time the word pops up, and it's Abram, who will be Abraham here in a little bit. And uh, Abraham uh, is the known to this day as the father of the Jews. And from Abraham begins the line that is going to bring us up to Christ, but also is going to bring us up to the 12 tribes. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob is where the 12 tribes come from. And, uh, you know, when you go back in Genesis, he uh, uh, brings about through that 12 boys who are all named, each one of them, for a particular tribe of the nation of Israel. So we have that going for us. And, again, here's where God deals with man on the basis of his conscience, uh, his heart attitude. Now, I'll show you again. Uh, Look over here in chapter 15, and uh, look at verse 5, 15.5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Obviously here, just as when he was talking to Noah, he was giving Noah a, a something to do that required incredible faith. It's the same thing here. And he's basically saying, look at all those stars. Now, you know, today you can see about 5,000 stars with the naked eye. Back in that day, without all the pollution and everything, you'd probably see twice that many, maybe more. So it was an incredible array out there of stars. And he's basically telling Abraham that someday his seed is going to be like the stars of heaven. And the Bible says, verse 6, and he believed in the Lord. Notice, he believed in the Lord. You see how that said? It didn't say he believed what God said, though obviously he did. See how that thing strikes like your salvation, even though it's not like your salvation? He believed in the Lord. It wasn't about just what the Lord said. He believed in the Lord. He trusted beyond what he said. And the Bible says, and it counted, and he counted it to him for, uh, for righteousness. And this is where Abraham, we'll use the term, gets saved. But understand, he's not saved in any way, shape, or form like you and I are. Salvation from dispensation to dispensation may vary, but the three key things are always in place. You've got to have grace, you've got to have faith, and you've got to believe what God told you and, and do what he told you to do. For Noah, it was to build a boat. For Abraham, it was here. For you and for me, it was believing that a dead Jew 2,000 years ago was hanging on a tree, had enough power to wipe away your sins. All three of them were ridiculously stupid. I mean, who would think that a Jew hanging on a tree would have enough power in his blood to save the sins of mankind? That's as far out as building a boat in a world where there never rained or taking a guy out and showing the stars, say, hey, so you're going to have kids like that and you're going to populate. I mean, it's, it takes great faith in that. 
Salvation is always grace and it's always faith, but it's always believing in what God told you about what you're to do. And for us, it's believing in Christ's death on the cross for them. And this is where, again, when you don't rightly divide the word of truth, when you're not a dispensational and you don't understand the Bible, this is where you're left to your own imagination and your own destruction, by the way. So what you do now is you start in the Old Testament coming up with the idea, well, they must have looked forward to the cross because we do look back to the cross. And of course, uh, there isn't anywhere in the Bible that even suggests that. The Bible says in Hebrews that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He didn't look for any cross. They knew nothing about the cross. But this is what you have to do when you don't know your Bible and you want to maintain your respectability so the people still come to your church and give money to you. You've got to come up with things that sound really good, even though they're so far out of line, it doesn't even, it's funny. So, what happens here is the fact that uh, they go down to, uh, up through here, we come up from Jacob, the 12 boys. Uh, Jacob, up in age, the 12 boys now are flourishing and they have their own families. And then we have the life of Joseph toward the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph, is the greatest type of Christ anywhere in, in the Bible. Uh, in over 152 places, he, he's a picture of, of, of Christ and salvation and all the things that go along with it. It's an incredible story. So what we have here now is a picture of, of, of what's taking place, what's transpiring, and uh, God is, this is his way. Uh, in the beginning, God, that's the beginning of his way. We're now moving along through the Bible that way he's going, and now he's formulating the nation of Israel. He's, he's bringing them to a point where now we will Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob brings the 12 tribes. Here we go. Then we have Joseph. Joseph is key because it's God uses the events of the, the brethren do to Joseph, not only to show us what the brethren Israel did to Christ, but he gets Joseph down into Egypt because God's way of where he wants to go with his nation, they have to get down to Egypt. And I'll show you that as we move into this next segment of this same deal here in just a moment. So by the time you get to the end of Genesis, they're all down into Egypt. And it's all a good scenario Joseph is second in the kingdom of Egypt. He gets a lot of perks for his family. Uh, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of good things that are taking place. They're happy. They're down there. They're all together again. And that's where the book of Genesis closes out for us. And the thing you want to remember is that these events in, in, in here that we're talking about, we are probably... 1,600, 1,700 years from Adam and Eve being in the garden. It's for us like 2,000 years ago, Christ died, and we all are relevant to that. Well, their relevance was Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. That, that, it's not that far in their history, background. So they go down into Egypt. Then the Bible says that in Exodus, he says that they're, after Joseph dies, that there, a period of time takes place and there arises a new king in Egypt 
that knew not Joseph. And now God begins in his way to fulfill two aspects of why they had to go down into Egypt. And they're down there about 430 years. The first one is the fact that in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, there's a prophecy of God bringing out his son out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 4 tells us that that son is Israel. So he had to be down in Egypt to fulfill the prophecy in Hosea that God was going to bring him out of Egypt, and he does. Then the second one is the fact that they're down there, they're made slaves, obviously, for 400 and some years, and uh, that's what made them strong. And so he allows them to go down there, and it forges them into a strong people because he knows that the affliction that they're going to have to endure coming up in the next two, 3,000 years, they need to be strong. And so he puts them through the rigors of slavery down there to make them a strong people and at the same time uh, brings about uh, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the prophecy that my son out of Egypt. And uh, it's a, you know, and so we see now, we begin to see it move from the covenant of Abraham, who is long dead now. Now we're moving into Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 11, we see Moses coming on the scene. So now we have the covenant that God makes with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, as it's called. And again, a covenant is just an agreement that God makes with somebody uh, to be able to uh, do what he wants to do and then have them on, on the same page. So we see that they're down there in Egypt. They've been languishing under great stress, slavery. Uh, Pharaoh, uh, the original reason why he enslaved them was he saw them as a threat. They were a mighty people, probably two, three, maybe more million strong at that point. And so he is afraid that they're going to overthrow Egypt and he'll lose his kingdom. So he enslaves them and that way he can control them. And we can only imagine the heartache that all that brought about. So we see that in Exodus chapter 1 through chapter 11. We also see God in his way and his timing is ready now to bring them out of Egypt. And where we, we, we see now where we have the formulation, now we're going to see the calling out. And so in the first 11 chapters, you talk about them crying out to God, God hearing their cry, God answering by sending them to deliver Moses. And yet, here again, I say it again, in this dispensation, there's a picture of your salvation and my salvation. We were under the bondage of Egypt, the type of the world. We cried out to God, and God sent us to deliver. Christ, Moses, is a type of Christ. So you see all that within the dispensation of historically what's happening. So we go through chapter 1 through 11, and we have all the deal. You know, Moses, go, Moses is called out, the burning bush, all that stuff. He was told to go before Pharaoh, let my people go. You know, uh, he had read Martin Luther King's book just a week before, and he's going to use that phrase because it's real catchy. 
So he says, let my people go. And of course, he's not going to let them go. And so he, 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 they, they go back and forth. Finally, God uh, brings us up to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus, the book means going out. And in Exodus, we see them coming out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 12, we want to look at that. This is a pivotal point in your Bible uh, in dispensationalism. Very important. He tells them in chapter 12, verse 1, and here's where you're going to start to see um, the end of this dispensation and the beginning of the one under the law with Moses. And I know Moses is in this one, but this is where it starts. He kind of, everything in the Bible, you know, kind of transitions. So Moses shows up in the last one at the very end and then moves in to be the main character in the, uh, you know, the, the, the fifth dispensation. So what we have here very clearly is a picture of how that uh, verse 12.1, it says, uh, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, never before has this happened. This is where God is reconstructing their calendar. And he's telling them that, we're going to change the beginning of your year. Up to this point, the beginning of the year was the Feast of, of Tabernacles. Even though the Feast of Tabernacles was not given them into the law yet, it was, it was what would be the Feast of Tabernacles around uh, uh, September, around September 21st or 22nd, which we know, which is coming up here this month, which we know is as the fall equinox. And... Uh, so you have a you have a you have a spring equinox and a fall equinox. Then you have a winter solstice and a summer solstice. The winter solstice is the shortest day of the year. The summer solstice is the longest day of the year, and it, it has to do with the sun going around the earth. And then your your uh, your um, your uh, equinox uh, is September, and then uh, six months on the other side of that uh, would be the spring equinox. And what you have here is that the, uh, the, the September 21st date, 22nd, whichever it may be, is the original date of the creation uh, in Genesis chapter 1. It took place in September. In fact, if you would get into it, you'll find that God creates the, uh, he creates the earth, and then four days later, he creates the sun. So if the earth is created and it's moving in its orbit, and then he creates the sun uh, later, uh, then it's four days off from being a perfect circle, which it is. Those four days that are off were the four days in September, which date the creation of everything that God created. So in the Old Testament up to this point, they began their year based on when God created everything. And that is standard up through uh, the nation of Israel, all the way up to uh, where we're at in Exodus chapter 12. This point, it changes. And now an event is going to take place that's going to usher in the next dispensation, and that's going to be the Passover. 
This is such a monumental event that God is telling them in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, from this point on, this is where you start your year from, and this will be the Passover. And so where the, pass, where the Jewish year was at the Feast of Tabernacles, or September, now it's going to be from this point, the Passover in April. And so uh, we see that this is a major, major, major shift because God now is moving out of this fourth dispensation into uh, the next dispensation, which uh, is going to deal with uh, uh, the law. And so we see that right here in Exodus chapter 12, this is where they came out. Uh, This is about putting the blood of the lamb on the door. This is about uh, the death angel coming over, the firstborn, all that. All that is historically accurate. This is about how it all transpires and shakes down. And when they come out of, of Egypt, this will begin to form for us the next dispensation, which would be the fifth one, uh, which will bring us from the beginning of the law up to the beginning of the times of the Gentiles or the end of the nation of Israel as God's nation. So, again, it's hard to say a dispensation ended on Monday and the next one began on Tuesday. There's always a a transitional period, but as you stand back, you can clearly see the events when it changes. It doesn't matter to me if somebody marks the end of the fourth dispensation, the beginning of the fifth at Exodus chapter 12 or Exodus chapter 20. It doesn't really matter. That's a non-essential. All that matters is that you see that we have now entered into the next level, and that will be uh, the nation of Israel not by their conscience anymore, now under the law. And uh, they will follow this now uh, up to about 606 B.C. uh, when they go into the captivity and uh, we end this dispensation. And this one here, we will see the establishment of the nation of Israel. We have seen the formulation and the calling out. Now we're going to look at uh, the establishment and then also the demise that takes place. And this will be uh, the Mosaic Covenant, where God makes a, uh, a covenant with, with Moses. Uh, we're going to see that during this time, there'll be another dispensation, uh, another covenant, excuse me, in this dispensation. That'll be the one that God makes with David. And we'll talk about that when we get to that point. Now, this one runs a major part of your Bible, It starts in Exodus, and then, of course, we know that the next four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all fall into that. And then we run into the book of Judges. Judges is, or excuse me, Joshua. Joshua is where they come into the land. This is the, in the beginning, this is God's way now. He's called, he's formulated them as a nation. He's called them out as a nation. He's strengthened them as a nation. Now he's bringing them to fulfill the promise he gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. You need to see that. And And these things are divided up, rightly dividing your Bible in what we call dispensations, how God changes what he's doing. If you can get the dispensations down and get them in your brain, and when you see your Bible, automatically remember them, The rest of the Bible is going to be pretty easy for you. But that's the key dividing of it up. So we see Joshua, 
I mean, the four, uh, you know, uh, Leviticus and all that. And then we see Joshua, where they go into the land. They begin to fight the battle. They conquer the land. Then the first form of government is the judges, which isn't very good. And then we see that after the judges, we go into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and we start to see the development of the kings of Israel. Because the Bible is a political book. The Bible is about a kingdom. The theme of the Bible isn't salvation. The theme of the Bible is the kingdom. It's a political book, first and foremost, about a politically correct government, God's government, and how it's going to run the earth. Obviously, and we'll look at this tomorrow, it'll be a good time to learn a lot of good stuff. Obviously, every government that man comes up with is a counterfeit of God's government. And you see that from the book of Ecclesiastes. They're all listed in there for you. So we come up through Joshua, Judges, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings. We got little books in there that take the same time, place like Ruth, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, we got Psalms and all the wisdom books are written during this time. I'm talking about a historical movement here of how, the, how this thing gets established. Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel. Then we move into 1st and 2nd Kings. And then we move into 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And what we're doing is we're establishing a line of kings that will lead to the king when he shows up. And of course, this is God's giving them a theocracy. He's setting them up a, a king and a kingdom. Israel at this point in time has the kingdom of heaven, the literal visible kingdom of heaven, and they have the crown that goes with it. And of course, uh, uh, they're moving up through this, and we start to see guys like Samuel, guys like David. We start to see guys like Saul. Then we, you know, and really when you look at this and you want to graft it out, you know, you just take a line going up and it gets to a point. On one side you'd put David, the other side you put Solomon, and you start coming down the line. This will represent the ascent of the nation of Israel to the key point, David and Solomon. And then after Solomon, it starts its demise. So you have the establishment going up, the demise going down, David and Solomon on each side of that point. Because David brings it to the greatest point, Solomon carries it on, but then Solomon falls apart, and then he leads to the demise through his boy, uh, you know, and Rehoboam, and everything starts to fall apart, and then Rehoboam splits the kingdom. Now you have a northern tribes and a southern tribe. The northern tribes are called Israel, 10 of them. The southern tribes are called Judah, two of them. And you have a recipe for disaster, divide and conquer. And the devil now through Solomon and Rehoboam has taken the, the unity of the nation of Israel and split it. And this would be your first church split in the Bible, and it's a doozy. And uh, when Rehoboam did that, he did that about probably 900 B.C. Israel doesn't go into captivity for about 500 years later. But when he did that, he signed a death warrant and the death certificate for the nation of Israel. Because now they're, 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 they're split into two factions, just like America was in the Civil War, North and South. Many times they're fighting and going to war with each other, and the enemies compromise on that, and uh, it, it destroys them. You'll find that in the Bible, in Chronicles and, and Kings and Chronicles, you'll find a list of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. At some point in your world, in your life, you have to get those laid out for yourself in your Bible. 
And uh, we've talked about that before with that little book that was really, 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 really good about the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, at some point, you've got to be able to uh, be able to do that. But we see that uh, uh, the begin with Solomon, it begins to fall apart. And uh, here again, salvation in this dispensation, now that we've established the law up to the captivity, uh, will be based on the law. God gave them the law that they had to follow. When they broke the law, they had sacrifices or um, uh, things that they had to do to appease their sin with God. Israel as a nation had a day of atonement. God gives them the feast. God gives them the the, uh, holy days. He gives them the sacrifices that go along with it all. He gives them everything they need. It's a very strict, stringent, Line, the nation of Israel, unlike us in the church, and, and we should be this way, but we're not. In the nation of Israel, what they had with God, the law, and everything that constituted their what God was to them as a nation, was ingrained in their families. <clears throat> it wasn't like it is today, where you have people who who don't really go to church or don't do this or don't do that. Uh, the way of the Jewish faith was all-inclusive in all of the family. Uh, the law in the Old Testament was as much in the family as softball, soccer, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner is in the church. It, it wasn't separate. It was all one. <clears throat> everything that they had with God was incorporated into everything that they did. Uh, there was no separation like it is today in Christianity where you can go to church on Sunday, and then forget about God the rest of the week. Uh, That's not the way it worked. <clears throat> uh, it came to the point where God was prevalent in everything that they did. Now, in the New Testament, in a spiritual sense, and this is the difference, kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, the literal kingdom, everything was literal. It was just drug into everything that was there. In ours, it's spiritual, so it's easier for us to dis- distance ourselves from that. And to have two lifestyles. I go to church on Sunday and I'm something else throughout the week. Truth of the matter is, it ought to be the same. Even though it's a spiritual kingdom, your relationship with God should be all-inclusive in everything that you do in your family. The problem is because it's a different kingdom. One is physical, where it's an actual government with a king and priests that are right there that hold you accountable. Here it's spiritual. And uh, there's a lot more latitude in the spiritual than there is in the physical kingdom. But that's where the church comes in. And the church, and I want to be careful how I say this, the church doesn't take the place of the structure of the nation of Israel, but the church is the structure for us that keeps it all inclusive. The problem is, if you didn't go to the temple back there, God killed you. Here, if you don't come to church on Sunday, he probably won't kill you even though he ought to. So it'll kind of work that way for you. It's just the difference between the two, but you need to understand that. And so now we've seen that this dispensation, you know, uh, there's two covenants during this one. You have one God makes with Moses, and then you have the one that God makes with David. The one he makes with David has to do with David's relationship with God and the Word of God and 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 taken into his family. And, you know, this dispensation 
you know, this dispensation is a, is a great dispensation. Uh, uh, it, it makes a major part of your Bible. And you can see now if what we're doing, if you can just get these down. And honestly, guys, you don't have to remember everything I'm giving you in them. I mean, in time, you hopefully you do. Uh, you know, it's a thing where you just, it becomes part of your understanding that when you go into your Bible, the first thing you realize uh, as you're trying to determine the context is what dispensation you're in. And that'll bring up all the necessary information that you need. I mean, I don't have to, you know, somebody asked me a question in Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2. The, the dispensation is clear. You ask me from Genesis 2 to, uh, or 1 to uh, 3 up to uh, chapter 3, it's clear. Once you know what the context is of those dispensations, even a little bit, the Bible starts to take shape and it starts to lay itself out. And you, when you can walk through verbally, you know, and I think it would be good you know, when we started our discipleship years and years ago and we taught everybody how to disciple, then we, we, we paired everybody up. You know, you disciple so-and-so and then you disciple them to get some practice. Honestly, and I'm not saying you have to do this, but I would think it would be good for some of you gals to pair up together and some of you guys and sit down and, 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 then, and, then, and then audibly, verbally talk about and walk through the, all these dispensations and just, I'm not saying you got to have it all down, but have enough of it that you know it and then let the other guy grade you on it and then he does you and you grade him and get used to being able to talk about it. You know, it's one thing to study it and to learn it, but what really makes it sing into you is when you lay it back out to somebody else. And it, w- it would be in a private thing where you wouldn't have to worry if it didn't get it all right. It, it, nobody's perfect the first time. But it's a thing where you just sit down and you start saying, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through the dispensations. Uh, and I'm not saying you've got to take 20 minutes on each one. But you clearly demonstrate that you understand what they are, how that they work through, and, uh, you know, and then bring, uh, just bring it more relevant to where you're at. Because uh, I'm telling you, the key to rightly dividing the whole Bible rests right in what you do with dispensations. And uh, if you get screwed up here, you'll be screwed up everywhere. Uh, it'll, it'll, never, it'll, never, it'll never change its way. Now, this dispensation will end with the collapse of the nation of Israel. I told you that it goes up to Solomon and David, and then uh, it starts to go back down. And this then dispensation will end with the collapse of the nation of Israel and, uh, and the losing of the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, you know, uh, and it, this is where Israel then will go into captivity. Now, just for your own records, if you don't have these in your Bible, uh, you have the nation of Israel is split into two groups, north and south, Israel and Judah. Around uh, 2 Kings 17 and 18 in your Bible, you're going to find around, it's around 721, somewhere in there, uh, uh, B.C. This is where the northern tribes go into captivity. And this will be under Shennacherib, who's the king of Assyria. He comes down and he takes, and, and 2 Kings 17 and 18 is an account of that. The southern tribes go into captivity under Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and you'll find that account in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 
they go in around 606 B.C. Those terms, dates are all relative because there's a lot of events happening here. I'm giving you the events as the historians circle that date, and that's what they give it for. It can vary a little bit, so you don't want to hold exactly, but just as a point of reference is what those dates are. It's right around that time period. And uh, this will end... This will end God dealing with the nation of Israel and establishing the literal kingdom of heaven temporarily. And the great passage on this is in Psalm 78. So let's, let's go over and look at that because I've, it's another key place in your Bible. Now, this is a long chapter. Uh, It goes all the way to uh, 72 verses. And if you don't have this uh, broken down here, uh, here's how this chapter uh, breaks down, and you at least want to get this. Uh, In chapter 1 through chapter 42, uh, he talked, it's kind of like a historical perspective. And then it moves into a future, a future perspective. Uh, and it's basically this chapter, God's wrath against a disobedient nation of Israel and them losing the kingdom of heaven. And it said, verse 1 through verse 42, he recaps their wilderness journey and all that they went through in that. Uh, in chapter 43 through, uh, uh, excuse me, cha- uh, verse 43 to verse 54, he talks about them being delivered from Egypt uh, and brings them up to crossing over the River Jordan. Uh, in verse 60 through 64, he talks about the coming times of the Gentiles and Israel going to go into the captivity because of their disobedience. And then in verse 65 through 72, it's all about Israel being restored uh, at the second coming of Christ. So that's how the chapter kind of breaks down, just so you understand it. You need to put that there someplace by it. But Psalm 78 is a great chapter on the kingdom of heaven and why and when it leaves planet earth. And uh, you'll you'll notice in, in 78 verse 60, it says, so that, talking about God, so that he, God, forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men and delivered his strength into captivity, his strength being Israel, and his glory, also Israel, into the enemy's hand. And uh, that's clearly showing you that the tabernacle of Shiloh, that's the tabernacle that we all know and love that was in the temple, but it started in Shiloh before it got to Jerusalem. And of course, the date of this is around uh, 722 B.C. This is where the Shennacherib comes down. This will be 2 Kings 17. And Amos uh, preaches about this in Amos chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 12. And uh, Amos chapter 3 also. 
and uh, you're going to find that uh, this is where uh, it all falls apart right here. And, uh, and this is the great chapter on it uh, that lays it all out. And uh, look at verse 35, 30, uh, 36, and this is talking about Israel's problem, which is our problem, really. Uh, Verse 34, when he slew, uh, let me see here. Verse 32, for all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous work. This is Israel with God. Therefore in the days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. When he saw them, then they sought him and they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God, their redeemer. Verse 36, here's you and me. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and, did, and lied unto him with their tongues. Uh, for their heart was not right with him, neither was they steadfast in his covenant, covenant of Moses. Uh, but he being full of compassion, praise the Lord, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Now that's a great verse. I guarantee you as Christians, here's what you'd never want to happen. God to stir up all his wrath on you. <laughs> you may get a little bit of it. <laughs> Brother, when he opens the whole can, you're in trouble. <laughs> That's a great verse. And here's why, verse 39. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes the way and cometh not again. How often did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Now, that's a great verse, too, because it says that Israel limited God. And that's a great verse for us because we limit God. You say, how in the world do you limit God? Because God's going to do everything through you just like he was going to do through Israel, and he won't do it any other way. So when you don't do what's right, Israel limited God and we limited God. It's a great verse. It's a great chapter. Uh, so it's a thing where this is a great a great. Uh, uh, this is a great, um, uh, a great dispensation. And Psalm 78 is one of the key uh, places in the Bible. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite incredible. Well, this will bring us into our sixth one. And this will be what we commonly call the times of the Gentiles. And this, this can be a little confusing because when this dispensation starts... Other dispensations come in, but the times of the Gentiles carry on. In other words, the times of the Gentiles fundamentally will run from 606 B.C. up to the second coming of Christ. The times of the Gentiles, this is the start of this dispensation, but it is uh, the times of the Gentiles runs longer than this dispensation. This dispensation lasts about 400 years thereabouts. Um, this dispensation starts with the close of the God dealing with Israel, Psalm 78, and then goes up to the first coming of Christ. But the times of the Gentiles continue on, and so there are more several dispensations within this title of the times of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are now going to run the earth till Israel gets reestated. 
But within that, there's going to be other dispensations where God changes what he does. That's what I'm trying to say. And uh, it's interesting that uh, anybody uh, who pays attention to history can see that uh, it's approximately, may give or take some, 400 years from the shutdown of the last time that God spoke to them, which would be uh, the books that he wrote, the last books like Zechariah, some of those. This is called the 400 silent years. It's a 400-year period, give or take, where God gives nothing to anybody. Heavens are silent. And he breaks that silent with the first coming of Christ. It has been pointed out and demonstrated that it's the same time period from when God finished the King James Bible and its final form, that God will never speak to man again in any other way because the Bible's finished. And it, we just celebrated a couple of years ago the 400th year of the King James Bible, give or take. And you guys would say that there are 400 years from the close of the Old Testament to the um, uh, first coming of Christ. There's probably 400 years from God speaking the last time and giving the King James Bible, and 400 years later we'll usher in the second coming of Christ. Probably a lot to that. Problem is you don't have the exact number of 400 years. We use the word 400, but it could be a little more, a little less. Not less, but a little more. Depending on where you count it. We don't know where God officially counted. We just see it in history. But this is called the 400 silent years, and basically because once the Old Testament canon is complete, for 400 some odd years, God gives nothing. Not a thing. Only truth a man gets will be what God already wrote. What you can see is how it fits into the finishing of the King James Bible. God is not giving any revelations anywhere, anybody to anybody today in the church age other through the last book he gave us that he spoke through, King James 1611 authorized version. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, once the kingdom of heaven goes out, <clears throat> the devil never misses a trick. Once the kingdom of heaven goes out and there's no more nation of Israel to hold the earth together and God to use them to do that. Then all the teaching of the Gentiles began to come in. The devil didn't miss a beat. And boy, when you see this, it's quite an eye-opener. Because up to this point, there wasn't one, other than Baal worship, there wasn't any contingencies of false religions or teachings peppering earth and society. You had God in Israel and you had Baal worship. That's all you had. Once Israel goes away and the times of the Gentiles come in, now you find the floodgates open of all the false religions that we know today and all the teachings. Uh, We find that uh, uh, Buddhism now shows up. Brahmism comes in during this time. Confucianism and Taoism comes in. Hinduism comes in. All of these religions that we know today that are out there did not start until God put away Israel and the time that the Gentiles came in and the devil used these to bring up all these counterfeits. That is so vitally important. Along with that, the Gentile nations now show up from Daniel chapter 2. You have Babylon, who is in power. 
Then you have Persia. Then you have Greece. Then you have Rome. And of course, they all bring in their phony religion. The Greeks set up the philosophy side of things. And brother, off it goes. Once Israel was taken out of the way, the heresy pours in. Now, here it comes. Once the King's End Bible is taken out of the way, all the heresy comes in. It's just, that's the way it just works. You know, we find that they go into the captivity. We find that uh, um, a couple of books, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, in that the Jew goes back, or at least a remnant does, even though it's the times of the Gentiles, they go back, and they go back as a remnant, and you get into Ezra and Nehemiah, and it exactly tells you how many go back. <clears throat> they go back, they rebuild the temple, and they rebuild Jerusalem, which has been destroyed by uh, Babylon and, uh, and Shennacherib. They rebuild all of that. But it ne- Israel never regains, and this is so, so, so vitally important that you get this. Even though they go back, even though they rebuild, Israel never gets back to her former glory of what she once was. And the reason for that is kingdom of heaven is gone. God is not sending them back so he can reinstitute the kingdom of heaven at this time. God's sending them back in preparation that 400 years down the line, the Messiah is going to show up and he has to come to Jerusalem and the Jew has to be in the land. So he sends a remnant back and the remnant begin the things that, uh, that assure that the Jew is going to be in the land. And of course, they're in an absolute total apostate mess when Christ shows up. That's important, not important. What's important is, is they're in the land. That's the key. And then it, it goes on from there. And then they get kicked out. They, they get a chance. We'll talk about this now. They get a chance to get it back. They reject it. What God do? He come down in 7 AD and kicks them out again. And now they're still out all the way up to 1948. See, and, and those, those are jumping ahead now, but just so you see where this thing is going. This is what he's talking about when it says, in the beginning, God created. Now, you get that beginning defined for you in Proverbs 8, the beginning of his way. And what we are looking at in dispensation is the way that God is going down through history. You've got to see that. So, during this 400 years, God speaks to no one. I have been asked many times, just so you know, that during this time, how does God deal with people? The kingdom of heaven is gone. The law, basically, is off the table at this point because God's not dealing with the nation. So how does God deal with a person during this time? And, of course, the answer is set out in examples, uh, especially in the book of Acts. God has already gave them what they are to be doing. The fact that God has taken Israel off the table, the fact that God has taken the nation of Israel and ended the kingdom of heaven, didn't take away from the fact of what God had already given them that they were supposed to do to have a relationship with God. So in this dispensation, without a nation, without 
any real anything that they once had. A man or a woman followed the light that they already had under the dispensation of Moses and the law. They followed the sacrifices the best they could. They did everything, and God honored that. Because now, for the first time, it's not about a nation anymore. It is about individuals. But those individuals have to do under the law what was given to the nation, even though the nation's not here. And then God accepted that, he blessed that, and he used that. But the nation is gone. It's never going to be a strong nation again till the Lord comes back. And it's absolutely done now. But God still has an obligation. You see this in the book of Acts. You see that in the book of Acts, you have guys like Apollos. You have guys like uh, that, that, that did not hear the Ethiopian eunuch. He did not hear about anything that happened in Jerusalem. So what he's doing is he's faithfully following the light that he has. And God honors that. He honored the Ethiopian eunuch. He honored, he honored uh, 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 Apollos. But God was obligated then at some point to get them the new revelation of what happened. At that point, if they rejected it, they're out. See? And of course, there's a model of what's happening back in the Old Testament at this point in time that he's basically, they're following what they already had. God is honoring it. And it'll get them to the place that the Messiah comes. Then if they get to that point and they reject it, which some of them did, they're out. See how it works? It's just that simple. It's not complicated. What I want you to do, and we're going to stop here right now. What I want you to do is I want you to be able to begin to get these dispensations down. If you're going to learn your Bible, you're going to have to learn it. I'm not saying that you've got to be able to repeat it verbatim like I did today. But you ought to be, every one of these, for thee, for me, every one of these, when I give you the title, in my mind, it kicks off a story. That story is already ingrained in my mind of what this dispensation is. I can separate it from the last one to the next one, but it kicks off to me when I say the dispensation of the time that a Gentile, boom, I have a story I'm going to tell you about that. Because I know what takes place in that period of time. That's where you got to get. And I would suggest, if you're serious about it, that that's what you do. Husbands can do it with wives. Wives can do it with husbands. Uh, you, you do it with your people. You do it in your prayer groups on Sunday morning. Uh, you, you, there's so many ways you can do this. Uh, but, you know, I know some of you guys meet together and study the Bible. Do it that way. You know, I'm just telling you, you have got to understand at some point in your world, the dispensation, because that is the fundamental, rightly dividing of the word of truth, and you don't have that, then you don't have much. So we'll hold up there.